0: Welcome to Talking Beat, the podcast for the Portland Police Bureau. We're focusing on thoughtful conversations that we hope will inform and provide you with a small glimpse of work performed by Portland police officers, as well as issues affecting public safety in our city. Here's what's on today's show. The one
1: thing that is important for victims of sexual assault to know is that you're, you're going to be heard and your voice is going to be powerful yes we do like to arrest rapists and and that is a focal point of our unit but the victim advocacy portion combined with an investigation i think is the best model it's the most progressive model out
2: there today Thanks for tuning in to today's show. We have a warning at the top of the show that this topic is sensitive and may not be appropriate for some of our listeners. We are talking about sexual assaults and the work that is done by our sexual assault unit. I'm here with Detective Supervisor Molly Dahl and victim advocate Patricia Barrera. So tell me about your unit and what you do.
1: Our unit is comprised of about 10 detectives right now, and we have four embedded advocates in our unit. We're a pretty progressive unit, having embedded advocates working side by side with the investigators. Uh, we respond to sexual assaults that occur uh, between the ages of 14 and 64. Each year in the city of Portland, we're about five to 700 sexual assaults are occurring. We are a victim-centered and a trauma-informed unit, and we uh, treat
2: victims holistically, and we're heavy on the use of advocacy with our survivors. So I just want to clear something up. The victims that aren't in the age group that you talked about, mm-hmm. who investigates those crimes?
1: Our family services division, our child abuse team investigates uh, uh, assaults to to victims under the age of 14, and then for victims over the age of 64 and other vulnerable adults, they go also to our Family
2: Services Division to our uh, Elder Crimes and Vulnerable Adult Unit. So, Patricia, you're a victim advocate. Tell me a little bit about what you do and what a victim-centered approach is.
0: So, back uh, in days prior, uh, when a detective or a uniform officer was interviewing a crime victim, sometimes they, a crime victim would be unable to answer the questions, they would be confused, and then sometimes when uh, a victim was initially interviewed by a uniform officer and then later interviewed by a detective, the stories were different. And oftentimes, a decision was made around that that kind of behavior or observing a crime victim who was laughing uncontrollably at the hospital, certain behaviors that we have now come to learn uh, through research and from victims speaking out and describing their experiences. But uh, neurobiology has become really important to uh, help uh, police bureaus across the country, across the world, really understand that some of the behaviors post-traumatic Event really need to be taken into account when when having interviews with uh, crime victims and how to conduct the interviews. So the detectives are trained in, in that approach, uh, a, a trauma informed approach, and are very strategic in how they conduct their interviews. And I believe are more successful in, in their interviews because they're they're um, able to. Pull out information. They don't uh, ask for a linear um, description of what took place. They're, they're allowing the victim to um, speak and um, speak on their pace or on their time, and it really allows for a more fruitful investigation. And uh, also, with the with the victim centered approach, uh, the bureau has created this victim services program. Which in 2019 is going to celebrate its 11th year, where they work alongside detectives and attend to those pieces that the crime victim is also experiencing because a detective is concerned about facts, information, gathering in, in, enough to conduct an investigation. And the victim is thinking, my God, how am I going to get to work? I've been having nightmares. Uh, you know, I'm throwing up. I mean, there's so many um, things that are happening to the crime victim that. She needs a um, collaborative approach as she goes through the criminal justice system, and advocacy is a wonderful piece of that. So, an advocate co- can work in partnership with a detective and address those um, equally pressing concerns for the crime victims nightmares, headaches, uh, you know, so the physical consequences of crime while they are able to um, conduct their investigation. So, the detective is able to move forward with the investigation. Because they're focusing on that, and then the advocates vo- focus on the recovery and the resiliency of a survivor to, um, you know, build her life back up again after a traumatic event.
1: And when we talk about being victim centered, when a victim has been sexually assaulted and they go to the hospital, at that moment, they are in control and they make the decisions regarding what process they want to take. If they get to the hospital and they don't want to report, um, that is their decision. They can do an anonymous sexual assault kit. If they do want to report, uh, then the next step would be contacted by our unit and an advocate or a detective. They get to uh, manage what's best for them. If they don't want to proceed, there's no pressure for them to proceed. So they are in control of the decision making, and that's kind of the general term of being victim-centered is they get to drive the bus. They are the directors um, if they want or they don't want an investigation to proceed. If they just want advocacy now and they're not feeling strong enough to go through the process of the criminal justice system, that's perfectly fine. We have the evidence. We have the kit. They can recontact us later on when they're feeling more empowered or more resilient. So, that's kind of a a nutshell victim centered as far as our unit goes. It's much more in depth um, from an advocacy level.
0: But I I appreciate Molly making that point because when uh, victims would say and are saying today, I can't go through this right now. I can't talk to a detective right now. The impression um, for, for many victims of crime, whether accurate or not, was they were dismissed or, oh, maybe it wasn't true anyway. When now, trauma-informed, knowing about the neurobiology, and just frankly, it, understanding that was such an overwhelming experience that a lot of people do need time to consider what their options are. I think that acceptance, when they hear a detective saying that, when when they hear an officer saying it, it does not ha- have to happen today, uh, it doesn't ha- have to happen next month, uh, it, That. That feeling of of being supported and understanding that it doesn't ha- have to happen immediately is is really empowering for a crime victim. So I I, th- I think that that piece that Molly's. Um bringing up is, has had, I think, a significant impact on our community, that crime victims feel supported, and they don't feel guilty or feeling bad when they say, you know what, I'm unable to do that right now. I am unable to do a full investigation and participate, because they must participate. They must attend grand jury. They have to have an extensive interview. Um, there there are things that you know they have to contribute to.
2: Yeah, let's talk about that. So let's just talk about calling 911 and what happens after that. Let's say that the victim does want to proceed. Okay,
1: so let's take it from the the very beginning. A lot of people envision a sexual assault as you know some stranger jumping out of the bushes, and um, <clears throat> although sadly that does occur, um, it's it's really out of the norm. Um, a lot of our cases are um, historical, where uh, they might be reporting a, a sexual assault that occurred a week prior or. You know, a year or even 10 years prior. Um, but if it is within 120 hours or five days, the important first step is getting to the hospital and getting that sexual assault um, kit completed by a sane nurse. Um, and they're specifically trained uh, to collect evidence from victims of sexual assault. So the first important piece uh, is getting to the hospital. Um, Contacting 911 if you do want to file a police report. If you don't want to file a police report, still do go to the hospital and get that evidence collected. And they used to be called Jane Doe kits, but as we know, um, male and females can be sexually assaulted. So now they're called anonymous kits. And you don't have to have police contact to get an anonymous kit collected. And that kit will go into evidence and it will remain there. It will not be destroyed. And it will be tested if the victim reengages when they 're ready um, or if they don't want to reengage, like I said, they drive the bus so if they do want to report, a uniform officer is going to respond and take a statement from the victim and know that when the victim is at the hospital they're Going to have an advocate that's paged out so that they can go through the process of the exam as well as the interview by a Portland police officer uh, with an advocate present. After that, The report will be tunneled to our unit, and uh, by the time it gets to our unit, then dependent on the case, we'll have an advocate or a detective uh, contact the victim, sometimes to check in, uh, to see if there's been a safety plan enacted. Um, If there's follow-up and evidence that needs to be collected that's time sensitive, then an investigator will be prompt in doing that. But it's definitely not like the TV shows where this event occurred and we go out and we make this dynamic arrest and people are thrown in jail. It's, these are very unique. Uh, it's a unique genre of investigation where uh, there's forensic testing. There's uh, many, many interviews to take place. It's time-sensitive, but we also have to uh, take certain steps to ensure that you have a proper case to uh, present to the district attorney's office. Why is there a delay? Because unlike SVU, uh, DNA is not tested over a commercial break. Uh, DNA can take months to be processed. And uh, an investigation, these are... They're not long-term like maybe a homicide investigation, but they're longer term where you have to compile a certain amount of statements and physical evidence in order to proceed because most sexual assaults don't have witnesses. You have a victim and a suspect, and you have very little cooperation. So you rely heavily on the forensics. You rely heavily on... uh, statements from persons the victim told immediately after the assault. Um, So they're harder cases to work when you have two persons testimony. And when a lot of our cases are uh,
2: cases where a defendant would argue consent, those are very difficult cases to prove. What's the statute of limitations on a sex crime? Oh, it's that's, that's
1: a, a whole book. It's a it's a difficult. It's you can't answer it. It first it was six years, then it was twelve. Then it mattered uh, what year it occurred and how old the victim was. So it's dependent upon the crime itself when it occurred, how old the victim was. So oftentimes we have to consult with the district attorney's office.
2: So if somebody's listening to this and they were a victim and they don't know. Maybe they didn't get a kit done, but they still want to talk to somebody. What do they do?
0: Well, the victim services program, the advocates would love to speak with them and see what options are available. Most immediately, of course, are resources to processing that, um, the getting the healing from either the the new memory of what had happened to them or the persistent. Memories of what had happened to them and how they could handle all of that, the grief and sadness, all, all that comes with having to finally accept, okay, that's what my teacher did to me. That's what happened. And so I think, um, you know, providing the resources for recovery from that sort of experience is critical. But out of that conversation could possibly sometimes come a case. So that's really important. And once an advocate starts listening and hearing elements that might, actually trigger an investigation, that's when the advocate will go to our supervisor and say, this is what she's explaining. She's kept letters where he's admitted. Um, she has other evidence and then perhaps the case can be opened. So there's a potential. We just have to hear them uh, describe what's going on. There's this lovely website called the Rose Project.
1: If a victim doesn't Want to talk to somebody in person or over the phone? There's email. There's all different kinds of ways ways to reach uh, out to our unit and get the information that you want. And it doesn't mean that you are committed to file a report, um, but you can get the information that you need. And there, you know, as I told you, our embedded advocates are wonderful at what they do. And and uh, just by contacting us doesn't mean that you know you have to
2: proceed in the criminal justice system, but the resources will be available. And the Rose Project is on the Portland Police Bureau's website, portlandpolice.com. So you mentioned, Molly, there are movies, there's headlines, there's a lot of things that talk about sex crimes and investigation, and not some that are so accurate. Talk a little bit about the barriers and some of the complexities of investigations that these shows or these headlines don't really discuss. Right.
1: TV is TV, Uh, but I think what everybody is realizing now, as well as the the Me Too movement, is that it touches so many people. There's so many victims out there, Um, and now we're in an environment where sexual assault is finally being addressed correctly. We have a mantra in our unit, and it's called start by believing, and that every case that comes up to our unit we set aside any bias, and judgment, victim blaming, and we investigate each case the same. The media is good at drawing attention to stranger rapes or stranger sexual assaults. Um, and those are an anomaly. Um, most of our sexual assaults occur to uh, people just like us in the room, uh, and it's by an acquaintance or someone they just met. Those aren't the headlines that are featured you know, on TV. It's uh, a lot of marginalized victims. Um, people that have barriers to housing, uh, the mentally ill, um, the addicted. These are what our victims look like, and these are the type of victims that are being targeted by rapists because they're vulnerable. That is the bulk of our casework, and we know now by testing thousands of kits across the nation that it's these marginalized victims that are being repeatedly offended against.
2: Molly, is there a common factor you see in a lot of these sexual assault cases? We do see a lot of similar
1: cases. Um, When I talk about our victims, we're not blaming and we're not imposing any bias or placing blame upon their actions, but we do see alcohol as being a big factor um, in making our victims vulnerable to sexual assault. It's a big component in a lot of our cases where uh, predators will actually seek out women who have been compromised, whether it's alcohol or drugs, and take advantage of their vulnerabilities
2: when they're under those effects. So you go out, you just want to have a good time, and you're not thinking about the night might end and and some Mm -hmm. horrific thing happening to you. So what is something a girl or a guy can do to protect themselves? Basic advice that I give you know my kids as well as you know other
1: friends of the family is is if you 're going to go out and have a good time and you 're going to drink or you 're going to use drugs recreationally, have a buddy have someone that 's that 's sober that 's going to make good decisions and go home with that buddy people that you think are your friends or people that you meet um, those are the people that are going to violate you, and that's what we see in our reports. So, have a buddy, uh, protect your friends, make sure people get home. That would probably eliminate about half of our reports. Taking care of each other um, when you're vulnerable. You know, we're not passing judgment. Just because you drink or, or do drugs does not make it okay that someone sexually assaults you. But please do go out of your way. And have a safety plan on how you're going to get home and who you're going to be with, um, and have a sober component to that night.
0: And I want to add to that piece about um, intoxication. I think how men can step up is to, you know, check each other if. you know, one one man is uh, out with friends, and he's totally blotto, and he's connecting with a gal. Maybe his friends should say, you know what, not tonight, buddy. You are out of it. Uh, I'm thinking about that movie, The Forty Year Old Virgin, where they took him to the Forty Year Old Virgin. They took him to a club and were encouraging him to find a drunk one. To find, oh, she's not drunk enough. Oh, she's too drunk. The woman was passed out on the couch at the bar, and I think we can do well to encourage our friends, if if we are the sober one, to say, oh, do not go home with that person. Do not leave. You have to stay here. Give me your keys. There's all kinds of safety planning around intoxication that's available online to stay safe, but the buddy system that Molly is talking about is really powerful, both for potential victims and for men potentially accused of committing a sex crime. If someone is so intoxicated... Um, they're making judgments that perhaps they're forcing themselves on somebody and that was not their intention at all to rape somebody, but they were very sexually aggressive because they're intoxicated. And then the next thing you know, they're behind bars. My buddy system
1: is called being an active bystander. And and if that is means going out and, and having that sober component to your group is stepping in and being proactive when you see someone that's... Um, Overdone it, or someone that's maybe crossing some personal boundaries. Um, alcohol amplifies bad decisions, and um, that's probably you know my my biggest uh, advice is go out party and have a good time, but have a plan and go home safely.
2: Patricia, I'm really intrigued by your job because I think sometimes people are a little intimidated to talk to detectives. And it seems like you have a real opportunity to connect with people. So tell me about your job and what you really like about it.
0: Victim advocacy is a fantastic opportunity to connect with folks who have experienced a traumatic event. And are not sure what to think, where to go, or what to do. Um, You know, some terrible thing happens to you, and guess what? Life keeps rolling. And so, to have an advocate by your side to to say, "I'll find that out for you. Here's a phone number for that. Let's just sit and have coffee and talk about this" is such a relief, knowing that they have someone who's going to walk through the criminal justice system with them. um, You know, they're they're not alone. And for a lot of people, they don't want their friends and family to know. So, so so who's going to be with them. And so it's very nice to have someone show up at the hospital. Um, that that isn't mom who really didn't want her dating that guy anyway or um, finding out that she drinks alcohol. So it's nice to have victim advocacy because it's a person apart from friends and family that they can bounce ideas off of, uh, get information to recovery resources and help them explain uh, how the process works because suddenly you're involved in a, in a whole different arena where they're using lingo you don't understand. What's this word indictment? What's you know DNA? What's CODIS? There's all these terms, and and people are starting to come out of the woodwork and wanting to talk to you. What's the difference between a uniform officer and a detective? You know, so having somebody there walking with with a survivor, explaining all of this, saying, just breathe. It's going to be um, a slow process, and we're going to get through it together. It, it's it's uh, I, I consider it a privilege to be that person. I feel very honored to be a part of people's lives. To um, be addressing something extremely intimate it, it, extremely painful, I take my job very seriously and i and I try to provide the best services I can, so they are able to move beyond it.
2: What I liked about what you were saying earlier. Was that people have varying emotions. I think it's like a grief, and everybody handles their grief differently when somebody dies. And this, in a trauma event, everybody is going to handle that differently. Tell me a little bit more about that. I think crime victims are often rendered speechless
0: by this experience. It's such a shock. It's such a shock to the system when someone uh, you've trusted, you've loved, would betray you like that, would violate you like that. It's it's such a disturbing experience. And so helping a crime victim conceptualize that by giving them uh, words to think about it and to discuss with them the fact that whatever they're thinking about and feeling is okay, it's okay. Um, and what's also interesting is uh, crime victims will Go all the way and hold, hold somebody accountable judicially, you know, where they're um, sentenced and uh, sent to prison, and oftentimes uh, crime victims remark that they felt like that was going to bring the closure to them, and they realized the closure was wishing the crime never even took place. and so uh, helping cr- crime victims um, heal and recover and address all that they're, they're feeling: anger, fear, hope all kinds of things that they'll apologize, that they'll feel bad, that they'll get help, uh, the offender. It's it's really important for them to explore all those emotional states that experiencing a crime brings
2: out. Molly, let's go back to these sexual assault kits you mentioned earlier. There's been a lot of headlines about them. Let's Mm -hmm. first talk about why we had a backlog and what the police bureau did.
1: Okay. In 2014, the Joyful
2: Heart Foundation, um,
1: they have been nationally... uh, a group that has been bringing to the attention of law enforcement across the nation the issue of backlogged or untested rape kits. And the sex crimes unit decided to conduct an audit. I think that in the past, no one thought, well, we don't have untested kits. The kits that need to be tested are tested. And um, when we talk about kits that had not been tested back to 1985, Uh, Those are kits that may have already been adjudicated, or they weren't tested because it wouldn't be probative because they're consensual partners, so the DNA wouldn't prove anything. Or um, a big portion are victims that maybe didn't want to proceed in an investigation. Um, Economics had a lot to do with it. The crime lab, uh, it, it costs a lot of money to test a kit, so if a case wasn't going to proceed kit wouldn't get tested. After the audit was done, um, we had 1,754 kits. We got a federal grant and um, created a work group with a DA, a forensic consultant, a dedicated advocate, uh, investigators, and the district attorney's office, they also received a grant. That grant paid for all of those kits to go to an outside lab, and the outside lab has tested every single one of those kits. We're done. Those kits have all been tested, and now we're in the process of doing the investigations, doing the victim notifications, we will not ever be in this position again because in 2015, Uh, we became a full submission agency where every single kit that is retrieved at a hospital will be sent to the lab. No discretion involved anymore from our jurisdiction. Therefore, there'll never be another topic of backlogged or untested kits. When we are addressing these 1,754 kits, we understand why some of the kits weren't tested. But Part of the reason some of those kits weren't tested was a systemic failure of the criminal justice system for victims of sexual assault. And I think that we've come such a long way now understanding more about sexual assault survivors that will not be in that position again, uh, where a kit is left up to the discretion of the criminal justice system, whether it's tested or not. So what we've done and what we continue to do with our Saki victims is first and foremost, uh, apologize for their kit not being tested. Yes, the criminal justice system failed you, and and now we're going to proceed better, and we are going to try and make amends um, and treating you like you matter and like that kit matters because it was part of you. That's how we want to proceed in these Saki cases, is we know that sexual assault crime clearance across the nation is only about 10%. So even if your case does not get to a prosecution level, we want to treat our victims more holistically now, and we want to um, address you know, our failures and make sure that they know now, even though it's past due, that we're here for them. And, you know, that advocacy portion being attached to the Portland Police Bureau is so vital now. We are the most effective unit that we've ever been now because of our embedded advocacy.
2: Molly, what do you think has been the result of testing all these kits? Well, when we talk
1: about Saki's success, I think the biggest success is um, the work that Patricia does with our victims. Um, You know, a lot of these Saki cases were out of statute. You know, so we can't proceed with them in the criminal justice system. But the victims are thanking Patricia. Thank you. I thought people forgot about this. Um, Thank you for reaching out to me. You know, I I still don't really want to do anything about it thank you for calling me. And that, I think, is our biggest success, is that going back and um, talking to these victims and making them feel that they matter now. Um, Yes, we just had our sixth indictment. Um, We've had five convictions. Uh, These are multi-state offenders. They are Serial sex offenders that have uh, offended many, many victims. So there's DNA out there that um, that we're harnessing in, and the rapists are being held accountable. And it's important for the victims to know that. But more so, um, we're able to touch these victims, say we're sorry this happened to you, and um, and that I think is the 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 biggest impact that Saki has had.
0: I want to agree. Molly saying that my uh, notification that we're reconsidering their case or taking a look at their case has had a significant impact on on the crime victims. It has allowed them to reflect with me on the phone. We have a conversation about it, and I think it's very uh, healing. I, I believe it's very healing to have that conversation with somebody who gets it, who is able to make affirming statements. I also want to talk a little bit about um, Molly describing how the detective apologizes, and I too have apologized on behalf of the bureau. But when I see a crime victim come in to talk with a detective, and the um, two, the investigator and the detective who are assigned to the sexual assault initiative are male. To have a man apologize and they mean it, it comes out uh, because they are sorry. To watch that, again, it's a privilege to watch that because I think it contributes to their healing significantly to have that acknowledgement. And yes, not all of them have been able to go forward, but that was powerful. Simply the bureau taking a stand on this issue, conducting the audit to see if we had any kits, acknowledging how many kits, applying for a federal federal grant to have them all tested, and conducting the follow-up, I think, is going to have ramifications in our community. And then the on-the-ground work of the notifications, affirming that and compounding our community commitment to addressing this
2: crime is considerable. So Molly, you have this DNA of these mm-hmm. kits. What happens to that DNA?
1: The outside lab, they, they'll they test a kit. And if they find a profile, a DNA profile that's viable in that kit, they're going to send it to our crime lab in Oregon. And Oregon's going to verify their work, and then if that DNA profile is robust enough, it'll get uploaded into our national database. And you know, think of that of like a giant cloud that's over the United States and it'll get loaded up into there and then it will, as we say, spin. It will spin around and see if there's any matching profiles, whether it's a known person or just another matching profile. When we talk about a CODIS hit, that means that a profile from that kit went up into that national database and it latched on to an identified person or a non-identified person or maybe another piece of evidence. So that's what we talk about when we say, we've got over 300 CODIS hits from our 1,700 kits. So that's the kind of evidence that we're receiving daily. Um, Know that Saki is still We're still in the mix of it. It's not complete yet. Our project is not complete yet.
0: And CODIS, Molly mentions, uh, it's an acronym. It stands for Combined DNA Index System. That was created by the FBI, and it was only finalized and rolled out nationally in 1993. So we have to remember that's 26 years old. It's a young database. So uh, there's definitely a commitment to um, swabbing anyone convicted of a felony. They should be swabbed before they go into any penal institution and, and or released. If they're in community corrections, they should be swabbed. So you know the the collection of DNA, what they call lawfully owned DNA, which is um, folks convicted of felonies, is growing. But it's 26 years
2: old, so it's a relatively new database. If I think that I'm one of the owners of those kits, if if I maybe was anonymous or I thought my kit was tested and and now I think it may be one of those, how do I go about learning about it?
0: The Sex Crimes Unit created a website uh, or a place on the Portland Police Bureau's uh, webpage. So it's called the Rose Project. We would definitely encourage people to visit that because we created a public service announcement. So you can see a video with with me, Molly, and our program coordinator, which is uh, really cool. And we created a, a dedicated email, the um, Project at portlandoregon.gov. So you can email us if you believe that you had a crime committed against you, a report made and a a kit created, so at PortlandOregon.gov. But we also created a dedicated phone line. So the Rose Project phone line is 503-823-0125, that's 503-823-0125. And I staff that phone and uh, the email as well. So if uh, you write in or call up, uh, I'll take as much information as you got and I'll follow up with it. And see, and see what may have happened with your report and kit.
2: What do each of you want people to know about your jobs and what you do?
0: All of us are more than any kind of crime that happened to us. Uh, sex crimes used to define us as dirty, low value, useless and worthless. Um, women who are known to have been sexually victimized were not deemed worthy uh, to be married. I mean, there was so many things, so many consequences to victims of sex crimes in our communities. And I think uh, the Me Too movement and the long-standing feminist movement has contributed to uh, a more comprehensive understanding how women fall victim to a sex predator. and. I think more and more people are understanding that Uh, anything that happens to us, any crime that happens to us does not define us. And we are more than that. And if this has happened to you, you can recover from it. There's so many resources today. The Portland Police Bureau offers a free self-defense class called Women's Strength. They have also opened it to uh, young boys and girls. So I think self-defense increases a person's confidence as well um, as increases their ability to withstand an assault. So I really encourage... Encourage people to consider looking at our uh, self-defense class, also on the Portland Police Bureau's website. And I also want to uh, encourage them to reach out the, to the Portland Police Bureau and ask to speak with an advocate, because we would certainly love to uh, answer any questions or concerns they may have. Because there's a lot, there's still a lot of shame and guilt around sex crimes, and we can tease that out with them and address some of the concerns that they have to see if uh, filing a report is something that they can do. And so lastly, I would say that um, filing a report is always strongly encouraged. I, I think that's a really good idea. When, when you've been sexually assaulted, holding that person accountable is important for them, but also for the community. The one thing that is important
1: uh, for... Uh, victims of sexual assault to know is that you're you're going to be heard and your voice is going to be powerful. Yes, we do like to arrest rapists, and and that is a focal point of our unit, but the victim advocacy portion combined with an investigation I think is the best model. It's the most progressive model out there today. And because we're getting an increase in reporting of historical sexual assaults, we have a larger clientele to cater to But we try to touch every victim that we can, whether it's with advocacy and an investigation or, you know, the bottom line is we're proceeding in our cases and we're working for the victims of sexual assault.
2: I appreciate both of you being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Talking Beat. Do you have a question for us? You can call and leave us a message on our dedicated voicemail line at 971-339-8868. Or send us an email to talkingbeat at portlandorgan.gov. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. More episodes can be found at our website, portlandoregon.gov slash police slash podcast.